Tamariye, welcome to First Up. It is Rapare, that is Thursday, the 2nd of June. Kornathan Rarere Tene. Coming up, Queen Elizabeth II celebrates 75 years on the throne. Free flu jabs for most Australians. Good news for them. New Zealand Rugby will today vote on whether to approve the partial sale of its commercial arm to the US firm Silver Lake. Uh, we're going to ask Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson about the Prime Minister's trip to the USA and we catch up with one of the politicians to watch in this new Australian Parliament, Zoe Daniel. People really wanted more attention paid particularly to faster and more economically focused climate policy but also to integrity in government. So these issues really do need to be considered by the new government. Talofalava, welcome to First Up. Nice to have your company here. We begin the show today in the United Kingdom. Because nothing unites the nation quite like Her Majesty the Queen, uh, who celebrates her 75th Jubilee this weekend. I'm joined in London by a man who will, is wearing a, a Union Jack waistcoat and a bowler hat uh, at the moment. And he's outside Buckingham Palace. That's honestly where he is. Hey, Henry Riley. Kia ora, Henry. You forgot the Union Jack socks and the Union yes. Jack bedding as well. That's right. Yes, yes, indeed. That's uh, where he, it's either that or that hill. Have they deconstructed that hill yet that we, you know, what was it? The oh, viewing? yeah, no, that's... Don't worry, that's long gone. I'm in a much happier place now that's gone. <laughs> hey, set the scene for us. What is London like uh, at this hour as we're on the verge of this jubilee? It's absolutely buzzing, uh, not least because everyone gets an extra two days holiday, which they're very pleased about. We get two bank holidays. So it is Wednesday where I am now, and most people in the UK have got Thursday and Friday off. So people are hitting the pubs right now, <laughs> and they are drinking, and they're having a great time, and there are Union Jacks absolutely everywhere you look. This celebration goes on over four days, so it really kicks off tomorrow where we've got what's called the Troop in the Colour, which is basically where you've got a big sort of military parade in London. It's great. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm so excited. I'm coughing. Yeah, it's, it's great. Right. Everyone gets, I know, I'm just, I'm choking up. Uh, <laughs> everyone gets involved. Um, you know, the Queen's going to be out. She hasn't made too many public appearances recently, as we've spoken about in the past, Nathan. So people are really looking forward to seeing her. She'll be on the balcony. She'll give us a little wave. And then over the weekend, we've got obviously services and we've got a number of things going on. And there's a real sense of sort of optimism and a real sense of in a year or, you know, in, in a few years with coronavirus where we've had a lot of division and we've had a lot of bad things happen. This is one thing where everyone can come together, have a few street parties, which are very popular here where sort of various roads are shut off. And that there's one that's aiming to be the longest street party in history. It's a kilometre long. So that is quite the party to be no, at. No, hey, excuse me, Henry. Remember, this is the uh, Boris Johnson's new thing, a mile long when it comes Remember, you're doing <laughs> imperial That's measurement true, now. Yes. It's 17 stone long. I'm not very good at, at imperial, but I'll figure that out as well. The long lunches, does everyone bring a plate to those or are they sponsored? Like, how does that work? Yeah, if you don't bring a plate, then you won't be invited to the next one. You have to bring a plate, uh, really. Uh, you you know, people bring along various sort of cold food. Um, it's the atmosphere that comes with it. Maybe you'll be in charge of entertainment as well, potentially. Mm. Uh, we have to bring the music and whatnot. But the main requirement is that you have to turn up in as many Union Jacks as possible <laughs> and uh, as many pictures of the Queen as you can physically get onto your body as well. <laughs> well, that's great. Four days of beauty now. Now, I mentioned there Boris Johnson, who it seemed like was trying to throw some, what do you call it, a misdirection that magicians do when he went, uh, uh, scandal, no, 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 imperial measurement, let's go. Doesn't seem to have a lot, yeah. of, a lot of allies around. However, there is a political ally who is calling out alleged coup plotters so is this the first sign that Boris is actually really under threat here? 
Well, I remember speaking to you last week and I was saying he's absolutely fine. I'm slightly more nervous about that view now, purely wow. because since we've had the publication of that report, it wasn't an instantaneous response from Conservative MPs where they were all submitting these letters. By the way, when we speak about submitting letters, you, Conservative MPs are literally writing letters to a man called Graham Brady, who is in charge of this group called the 1922 Committee. If you hit a certain number of letters, in this case, 54, then it triggers a leadership election. Um, they weren't coming out of the blocks as soon as this report, the Sue Gray report that we spoke about recently was published. They are now, though. And in fact, it's not the usual suspects. It's not people who have been sort of constant critics of Boris Johnson. It's people who have been largely quiet, largely supportive. I'll give you one example, a lady called Dame Andrea Ledsom, who was uh, actually in the cabinet with Boris Johnson until not very long ago. And she's now calling uh, for him to go. And as you said, one of his allies is the culture secretary, Nadine Dorries. Now, she is a huge fan of Boris. There was a I remember a few years ago, Boris Johnson was going to run for leader and didn't. And she broke down in tears in the middle of a press conference because he wasn't running for leader. So she is almost sort of obsessed with Boris Johnson. <laughs> she loves him. Uh, and she is saying that these people who are sort of attacking him, handing in their letters are part of this coup and they're plotters, as you put it uh, just then, Nathan. Um, but there is a sense that perhaps his position is under a lot more threat now. We're creeping closer potentially to those 54 letters. And straight after we've had this celebration jubilee weekend, Parliament is back on Monday and we could see the Prime Minister facing a vote of no confidence. I've seen pictures of how she looks at him. You're, you're right. Um, just very quickly there, <laughs> but big weekend for, for people on holidays, people selling uh, Union Jack tea towels and spoons or whatever. But rough weekend at, at the, the airlines. What's going on with the flights being cancelled? I mean, it has been the real story at the moment. It's what all the news bulletins are talking about. It is this travel chaos, as it's being dubbed in the UK. I mean, just alone today, we've had 155 flights uh, on Wednesday cancelled. We've had, you know, a, a British Airways, one of our main operators, in fact, our main operator, has cancelled 124 of those. Um, and you've had people sleeping at airports. You've had people breaking down in tears. They're missing funerals that have been postponed because of the pandemic. They're missing wedding anniversaries. They're missing you know various key events in people's lives and we all know what people have suffered during coronavirus and this being you know we not that long ago not that long since we've had all the travel open and people are pretty upset what's caused this well there's a number of things firstly staffing we know that um since coronavirus 30,000 staff have been cut from airlines and airports in the UK so airports quite simply don't have enough staff to man all of these planes, to man all of these people. Um, the government are blaming the travel companies for overbooking. And the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, has said, I met with these guys two weeks ago and I said, you know, half term's going to be busy. And you're not cancelling people's flights. There's a real war of words. People are also blaming Brexit. Um, but what is clear is that this is a scandal that is affecting a lot of people. 56,000 people in the UK have been affected one way or another by uh, by flank flight cancellations. And that doesn't even bring into account the people who've had delays for sometimes days. Oh, awful. Henry, stay where you are. That's fantastic. Don't fly around. Henry Riley, our man, very close to being near outside Buckingham Palace. As you are listening live to First Up, it's 12 past five here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarude. Always keen for your feedback. I thought there's a few things here we could ask about. Um, are you doing anything to celebrate the Queen's 75 years on the throne? 
this weekend. And another part there too, I thought was imperial measurements. Obviously, we're a metric um, country here. What are the imperial measurements that you still use in your head or perhaps out loud? Or is there one that you would bring back? Um, I, look, I want to keep metric as far as dividing by 10 goes. That's easy. But is there one that you go, do you know what though? We could probably still go with those. Let me know. 2101 or the old-fashioned way on first up at rnz.co.nz. Let's go to Australia now. We're like us. Lockdowns might have been a thing of the past, but the influenza virus has returned with a vengeance. To counter the surge in cases, a number of state governments are offering free flu shots. The ABC's Oliver Gordon reports. Victorians have been effectively in hibernation for much of the last two years, but now they're mingling once again. The flu is back. There have been more than 15,000 cases in the state this year, more than the previous two years combined. This is our first real flu season for two years, uh, and what this free program will do is protect Victorians and their families in the face of what is going to be a challenging winter. That's Victorian Health Minister Martin Foley announcing that from today until the end of the month, anyone in the state over the age of six months can get a free flu jab. Almost identical programs are being rolled out in New South Wales, Queensland, WA and South Australia. Free flu jabs are also being offered in Tasmania, but in that state the scheme is limited to people over the age of five. And in the ACT and Northern Territory, free vaccinations are available for vulnerable groups only. While the medical community is welcoming these measures in Victoria, where the scheme was only confirmed yesterday, some GP practices are now scrambling to get the required stock for an anticipated stampede. Dr Shay Wilcox runs a GP practice in inner-city Melbourne. All our spots are booked up. Uh, we do about one flu shot uh, every minute when our flu shot clinic is running. Um, and so we go through them pretty quickly. Are you anticipating you'll have to turn people away for or close down bookings? Unfortunately, this week I think we'll have to turn people away just because we won't be able to um, get together the doses in time uh, to maintain the uh, you know what I expect um, will be the demand. Yeah, but we will hopefully have more stock coming for next week. Um, it's just a little bit of a grey area at the moment. Dr Wilcox isn't at all surprised by the resurgence of the flu this year. People are mingling, uh, you know, mask wearing has really dropped off uh, or gone by the wayside. Um, and so the respiratory viruses are coming back. Uh, it's not just influenza. There are many other respiratory viruses that we're seeing in the community. However, uh, flu cases, are um, they're really skyrocketing. He says two years lockdown has made us less resilient to the virus. The immunity to the influenza um, as uh, as a community has dropped um, because we haven't been seeing the virus over the past couple of years. So that baseline level of immunity um, is lower now than it has been in the past. High rates of cold and flu and persistent COVID numbers across the country have led to another problem. Blood donations have nosedived. Data shows around half of all blood donation appointments are being cancelled, many due to illness. Red Cross spokesperson Jennifer Salter says the organisation urgently needs thousands of new donors to come forward in the next week. We would definitely like our stocks to be higher. Um, we need about 17,500 Australians across the country to come forward um, over the next week and give blood. Um, we urgently need A, O and B blood. So um, if uh, people are available to give blood at the moment, we would definitely urge them to come down, roll up their sleeves and help out. If someone's on the fence, you know, driving their car right now thinking, oh, yeah, maybe I should give blood, what's your, what's your pitch to them? 
I would say just do it. Um, it's going to take you about an hour out of your day and you're going to save up to three lives during that hour, which is just, you know, how, how better are you going to spend an hour of your time than saving three lives today? That's Jennifer Salter from the Australian Red Cross Ending That Report from the ABC's Oliver Gordon. 16 and a half past five here at First Up on RNZ National Security, one of the biggest issues facing a number of European nations in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as Sweden and Finland apply for membership of NATO. And this weekend, the people of Denmark vote to strengthen ties with their European allies, plus the internet versus Sweden. Uh, in Sweden is our correspondent, Dr Anita purcell Sherland. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, fine, thank you. Actually, I should say Talofa, it's our morning language week, there we go. Oh hey. yes, yeah, yeah, tell me, tell me this, the referendum in Denmark, what's all that about? Well, Denmark has had 30 years um, a, a kind of a defence reservation or opt-out, which means that the Nordic country plays no part in most European defence and security initiatives. Now, Denmark is the only EU member that has a so-called defence reservation. But like its Nordic neighbours, as you mentioned, um, before uh, Sweden and Finland, Denmark has been reassessing its security policy since the Ukraine-Russian um, conflict. And opinion polls suggest that Danes um, back closer European defence ties. Now, because of this, EU opt-out, and despite being a NATO member, Denmark is not invited to EU security meetings, have little influence, and cannot take part or finance any military operations. Now, the EU is currently involved in several military missions and voting yes in the referendum, which is happening um, today, could, my today, could mean Denmark is taking part in missions, uh, could take part in missions in Bosnia, Herzegovina and off the coast of Somalia. Ah. Hey, when we go to France here, normally I see protests and it's uh, French farmers and they're, they're sending tractors around the Arc de Triomphe or whatever. With civil service reform is at the centre of protests. How are they protesting this one? Well, basically, for the first time in 20 years, it's not just civil servants, but it's also, you know, the French diplomats are also striking against reforms by President Emmanuel Macron, such as, you know, scrapping special status for senior foreign ministry officials, after which they become part of a broader civil service pool. Now, France has the world's first largest um, diplomatic network with around 1,800 diplomats, and in total, around 13,500 officials working at uh, foreign ministries. Now, the strike comes at a bad time for President Macron. At, president, um, at present, uh, France holds the rotating EU presidency until the end of June, and President Macron is trying to establish a leading role in the bloc's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Dr Sherland, uh, I was on the Twitter machine the other day having a read, and people brought up a, a tradition in Sweden, and so I thought we can ask uh, Anita about this. I'm just going to read this for everyone. This is part of a thing called Swedengate, and, and it goes stories like this. I had a good relationship. Well, this is from at Going Hume. I had a good friendship with my neighbours in Sweden for several years, and every time I was at her house during dinner, she would leave me alone in her bedroom, not saying a word to me, left left me alone for about 20 to 30 minutes while I sat upstairs hungry. And then lots of other people said, yeah, that's the same thing. When I was there, I'd have to stay in the room while the family ate dinner and no one fed me. And people on the internet are losing their minds. This can't be real. Is this real? 
Well, thank you for taking me down the Twitter rabbit hole. But um, you know, and and I've been I've lived in Sweden now for for nearly twenty years, and I've never heard this happen. And um, with with our kids, this has never happened to them. Right. But of course, you know, I asked my husband about this, and he says, "Yeah, sometimes it does happen." And uh, the reason is because that Swedes are not stingy or anything like that. It's just that you know they have a lot of. Um, well, they, they they have a lot of cultural um, ideals behind it. First off, that one Swedes prefer to um, visits to be planned in advance, and that applies to all social events, not just play dates among children. Um, but of course, if a child unexpectedly says, you know, I can't go home in time, or my parents don't have food for me, of course that that child is going to be fed. Um, the the other issue is that. Um, Swedes often plan meals for a whole week. So in other words, they buy just enough food they think um, that they will finish in order not to waste food. And so in many families, the meals of the week are often decided days in advance. But having said that, as I said, children will be offered food if they were hungry, unable to go home, or if their parents were unable to make food for some reason. And another thing too, is that dinner time is very sacred in Swedish families. So in other words, dinner is an important um, family time and the expectation is that children should eat with their own families and that it's very unusual that a child would not want to eat with its own family um, in that case. So, yeah, I, I have been reading it. It's known to have happened and there are lots of reasons as to why that doesn't happen. And usually I have to say it happens with uh, what's called unwelcomed visitors. Oh. Oh, right. <laughs> okay, yeah, so you just leave them alone in the room just assembling some furniture or, or something very Swedish along the way. Well, I thought see I thought to my I thought to myself see it must be an odd what what's the word there an odd contrast there being of the Samoan culture that you've got of obviously sharing and welcome and stuff and then that as well. So there we go. Thank you very much for talking us through that. Uh, Dr. Anita Purcell Sherland in Sweden. 22 minutes past five. Had, had you heard any of this before? Apparently it happens uh, in other, other countries too. Um, uh, I'm Nathan Rarity with First Up here on RNZ National, still coming. We're going to ask the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson about the PM's trip um, and if the Labour government is hustling enough on the business front and New Zealand Rugby votes today on whether to approve the partial sale of its commercial arm to a US firm. It's time for us to catch up with one of the reporters from our local democracy reporting programme. This morning we're in Rotorua with Felix Damaray. Kia ora, Felix. Talo for lava, my friend. Yes, if we came to your place, you'd, you'd feed us one of your trout that you've caught, right? Uh, without a doubt, uh, yeah. for sure. Although I do have uh, Norwegian ancestry, so it might be a fine line. <laughs> oh, it could be whale. There we go. Hey, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, hey, look um, like most of the country, no authorities are, are trying to find solutions to the housing crisis. Can you tell us the plan to flog off Rotorua's reserves? <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, this is a, a proposal I uncovered. Um, I had a, a source provide me with a document um, that appears to be minutes from a closed-door council meeting, um, which happened in February, um, and found out that the council is, was and is considering uh, selling reserve sites for housing. But the problem with that, right, is that reserves are reserves. So you've got to revoke their status as reserves in order to sell those sites off. 
And so how the council pro- uh, proposes to do that, um, as it has it come out all in public now and as it is out for consultation, is through a local bill. And uh, I don't know if you remember the word local bill and Rotorua Council being associated fairly recently with the Māori Wards uh, yes. uh, bill. But uh, yeah, that's just happened recently and now they're going to give it another go, quite possibly um, th- through consultation. And and once again, they're, they're, they're at work and they're having a good day and they're like, oh God, Felix is here, quick, hide everything, throw it in the shredder. Um, they, <laughs> they, no, they, 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 they adore me. <laughs> so um, t- take us through this. How did this all come to light when you did your digging? Um, well, so yeah, I originally got that uh, that document from a source, and that revealed what was sort of going on behind those closed doors. And then since then, it's sort of come out through council meetings and, and that sort of thing. And then just recently, uh, just in the last week or so, I revealed that uh, uh, the council was in talks with Kainga Order for to sell off um, some of these sites to them directly um, as early as September last year. Um, so uh, it would be, um, <clears throat> the proposal includes um, sites for possible public housing sort of to address the the large issue that we have here in Rotorua with emergency housing. We've got 800 people uh, living in motels on Fenton Street. Mm. But we do also have a deficit of about 1,500 uh, homes that are needed um, and counting. So it's a sort of way to address that. Well, what, so so what happens next? Um, well, the the it's going through consulta- consultation now. So the council signed that off last week, uh, not without a little bit of raru uh, raru, uh, I suppose. Uh, there was um, one councillor who raised concerns about her faith in Kainga order. Uh, as a, a landlord, um, and she was quite quick to explain that it wasn't about uh, the people in emergency housing. Um, but so, but it did manage to get through with the mayor's casting vote. So it's now up for consultation for four weeks, and uh, we'll we'll soon hear what the public thinks of it all. We will, and we'll hear about it because of you. Thank you very much, Felix uh, Damaray, from the local democracy reporting program out of Rotorua. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 2nd of May. Uh, no, 2nd of June, that's right. Yeah, Oof. it's just got here so fast. I think we can all agree on that. On this day in 1875, Alexander Graham Bell went, ah, because he discovered the principle of sending sound by wire, which was the precursor of the telephone. What did he send? Uh, the sound of a twanging clock spring. There you are. That was the first phone call ever made. Uh, it's uh, 1941. It was the birthday of, of someone here, which was quite um, quite incredible. American professional baseball player Lou Gehrig, who was nicknamed the Iron Horse. Now, um, he's famous in America for baseball, but he's actually more famous because he was the first famous person to be diagnosed with ALS. And in the States, it's known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Really brought it uh, to the uh, to the public so that they could see it. And unfortunately, he died two years years after he was diagnosed he died at the age of 37 uh rolling stones fans yesterday was celebrating ron wood's birthday today 
they remember Charlie Watts, who would have been 81 years old today. Of course, he died last year. And it's the birthday of someone quite incredible, Johnny Weissmuller. If you don't know who Johnny, Johnny uh, Weissmuller was, nine years old, he gets polio. His parents put him into swimming, hoping it will help. Boy, was he incredible. Five Olympic golds. He was the first to break the one-minute barrier for the 100-metre freestyle. And in the swimming world, that's like being the first person to run under 10 seconds for 100 metres, right? It's kind of one of those. He was that one. He set 50 world records. Three years later, they go, hey, you'd look good in a loincloth. And he went, oh, okay. And he stepped in front of a camera and he said... Because he was Tarzan. That sound, uh, the, the, the author Edgar Rice Burroughs described in his book as the victory cry of the bull ape. Does it sound like a victory cry for Bull Ape to you? So Weissmuller later said that, because he was he was uh, born in Europe, he said, look, that was inspired by the yodelling of my German neighbours. And he also had success as a yodelling contest winner when he was a boy too. Although it was later revealed that apparently they told Johnny, yeah, 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 man, you were great. But what they had done was they'd mixed, mixed in an actual opera singer there, which is how there was so much control over it. So pro Johnny thought that it was him. Probably actually wasn't him. And that is uh, the day that we remember, the 2nd of June, this day of our life. What you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Tell off for Giles Beckford, how are you, sir? Tell off for Lava. Does anybody yodel anymore? Yeah, uh, there must be. Yes, there will be yodelers. I'll bet you there are. Oh, the top sure. twins, obviously. Um, yeah. They're still holding it down, I think. And the, if, Let us know. Are you out there? Are you yodelling? 2101. The only song I remember was They Taught Me How to Yodel. yodel. Was, was that a John Hall Grinnell song? I think so. It used to be when I was a kid, uh, weekend viewing for me was a TV show called That's Country, and they always used to have that one on it. I think Suzanne Prentice was on that show. Quiet whisper in my ear from JR operator says Fred Dagg. Oh, there we go. Fred Dagg. <laughs> there you go, John yeah, Park. I'll try and move that. Anyway. Tell me about stagflation. stagflation. Is, this, is this the rising cost of, of stag deuce? It, it's it, terrible. Yeah, it, it is. It is and I know how hard it will be for a portion of society. More importantly, it's actually the state of the economy when you have little or no growth and high inflation. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a bit like... Yeah, having a, a disease that you just can't get rid of. Japan, for instance, uh, had a decade of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it means that really your country doesn't progress, your economy doesn't progress, uh, you're not earning, but people are still suffering from the high cost of living. So uh, there are people saying that the indicators here uh, that uh, we may go through a period of stagflation, not just recession, uh, recession is where the economy actually contracts, but usually there's a quite a, a bounce back after that. But stagflation just lingers with you, a little bit like uh, what they used to call Tapanui flu. Perhaps as some people suffer with long COVID. Long, long stagflation. Long, long stagflation. Yeah. So something to be guarded against. People watching the business surveys for more signs that that might be the case. I think the expectation is really that if something's going to happen to the economy, that will probably slip into a recession because the Reserve Bank is going to have to hike interest rates quite high, oh, and right. that will just tip us over the edge. Oh, goodness. Giles, thank you very much for that. That's all 
Lifted our spirits. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, just the, I'm the chair germ, you know me. Good, is it? Yeah. Charles Beck for there. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Your Kiwi dollar right now is buying the following. 64.77 US cents, 90.54 Australian cents, 60.86 euro cents, 51.88 British pence, 4.33 yuan, 84.23 Japanese yen and 41.13 Russian rubles. If we have a look around the world of how much things cost. At Woolworths in Australia you get a leg of lamb for $15 per kilo. At Tesco in the UK £14 per kilo. Here in Aotearoa a leg of lamb costs you uh, $20.90 per kilo at uh, Countdown and $18.99 at Pack and Safe. There you go. Uh, look, perhaps the biggest story of last month's Australian elections wasn't the rise of Anthony Albanese's Labour or the decline of Scott Morrison's Liberal National Coalition. It was the dramatic ascent of that group known as the Teal Independents. Now, these new MPs managed to beat Liberal Party MPs in seats they'd traditionally considered safe, promising greater action on climate change and integrity in government. One of them is Zoe Daniel, who I spoke with before the election. Now, Ms Daniel, she just romped to victory in the uh, Melbourne electorate of, of Goldstein. I asked her what influence she has, you know, as an independent MP, what could she actually do when it comes to the direction of the government? I think what we found during this election was that people really wanted more attention paid particularly to faster and more economically focused climate policy, but also to integrity in government, for example, and gender equality for women and girls. Mm -hmm. So these issues really do need to be considered by the new government, whether it has a majority or not. I, I saw that uh, the Prime Minister had uh, shot overseas for some visits and um, it's going to be a difficult balancing act for him, isn't it, when it comes to climate change? I mean, bold climate action on the one side uh, is is good and is wanted and then also on the other side he's got to balance that, that upset, you know, upsetting people in the coal mining community. So do you think the presence of, of the independents like yourself will, will help tip the scale, uh, you know, to, to, to what you would like? Look, the Labor government is obviously going to have to consider the impact on its traditional base, those being the working people of our regions who work in the coal industry. And and that should be paid close heed to. Those people deserve a just transition. But also many of those people want a plan too and have been crying out for a plan, knowing that fossil fuel industries are in decline across the world and that we needed to move forward into renewable energy and that there would be vast impacts on their communities economically and socially. So I think what we're now looking to from an Australian community that's voted for faster and and better climate action is how to help those communities to transition, how to replace those industries by building new industries and also by focusing on things like training, R&D and education in communities that are going to be worst affected to to support that transition. And then at the same time, yes, the new government has to listen to those communities that voted in independence in order to get the kind of climate action that we're talking about. So it will be a fraught balance for them, but I think the Australian community has spoken quite clearly. Yeah, you know, the Teal Independence, you're broadly aligned on a number of issues, but I know that it was, it was good to speak to you before the election because, as you said, it's not like you're all just a new party. You, you have got, I suppose you would vary on some things, but more than likely do you see that you will be voting as a bloc? I don't think there'll be any formal voting as a bloc. I mean, obviously, having similar positions on some of these issues, you'll see some of those independents vote the same way. Mm. Um, 
on some things. Uh, but, but then also I think each of the new independents will have particular priority areas that others don't uh, that we want to focus on. I have a, a particular issue around truth in political advertising, for example, after um, what was a, a campaign that was fraught with misinformation. So as a former journalist, that's a focus for me. Uh, I know others will have different priorities. I think, though, what you'll see is independence through reflect the views of the community. And in my electorate, 80% of people want that faster climate action. So my job is to represent them. And if that's what they want, that's what I need to advocate for. How will you uh, keep in touch with your, with your, with your electorate? Do you, do you base yourself back there a lot or do you have a lot of meetings? Or, or like, you know, Because you've just said that you really want to stay in line with what they want. So, so how will mm. you make sure that you know, you've still got your finger on the pulse of what they want constantly? My plan is to represent the community in much the same way as I've campaigned. So to hold community forums, for example, to hold what we call street meets, so to be available out on the street for people to come and meet me with a coffee and, and have a chat about their concerns. Uh, we have active plans afoot to survey the entire community so that we can rank issues in order of importance post the election. Um, we will also be actively surveying our thousands of supporters and volunteers to find out how they want to continue to be involved with me over the next three years. Mm. This has very much been more than a campaign. It's been a community movement. So it's to do with continuing to engage with that community genuinely to represent their positions. I just want to be selfish New Zealand question here because you know what it's like. You know, you always try and centre things around. <laughs> the the five hundred one deportation policy has caused a lot of uh, you know a lot of pain here in New Zealand. Broadly speaking, do the independents support scrapping that five hundred one deportation policy? It's a good question. It's not something that's come up for me during the campaign, um, but it, it's something that. I would consider on its merits if it does. I mean, I think that as a community independent, one of the intentions is to try to represent the community in, in a, a small way um, on those micro issues from within the community, but also to then look outward um, to think, well, how do those issues and and priorities affect the broader Australian community and the world? I mean, as someone who's been a foreign correspondent for 15 years, uh, international issues are quite within my focus, mm. uh, but I also have to be aware that I've been elected as a community independent to represent the people around me in the community of Goldstone. Uh, speaking of uh, independence, uh, sorry, internationals, Jacinda Ardern has been travelling. She's in the United States as currently as we speak, but heads to Australia in a few days. How will she be received by, by the new administration, do you think? <laughs> Uh, I imagine she'll be received very happily. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's great synergy between this incoming government and, and the Ardern administration, um, a possibly closer synergy uh, than there was with the previous government, if I could put it that way. Um, and I do think potentially even the Australian people have taken something um, from the New Zealand pe people's uh, example over the last few years uh, in electing someone who's very empathetic. She's been a great example of leadership in that sense. And certainly as a woman, um, I think that's been great to see. Speaking of leaders, uh, the Liberals, they've, uh, Scott Morrison's gone, so he's out of there now. Peter Dutton, new leader of the, the Liberals. You'd be thrilled to see, to see that, would you? 
Well, I don't know, Mr Dutton, as a working journalist for many years, I have crossed paths with various of the politicians of both the coalition and also the Labor Party. Um, I, I would say that I think it's an interesting move considering that there was a strong vote from women um, against the coalition government. Um, and I'm not sure that women will embrace Peter Dutton as leader. Um, and there's also been substantial polling around to, to indicate that he will struggle um, with popularity. The coalition has a big hill to climb um, too after this election, having lost so many seats. That's Zoe Daniel, the new independent MP for Goldstein in Melbourne. It's 20 to 6, you're listening to First Up on RNZ National. Big day for New Zealand rugby, they all get together and they vote and they wait for the white puff of smoke to come out to see if they will approve the partial sale of a commercial arm of New Zealand rugby to Silver Lake. We'll speak to Joe Porter soon about that. Uh, And the Deputy Prime Minister will be here on the show talking pharmac, flu jabs, White House visits and everything else. As I understand, there's some earthquakes that are rattling the South Island. Hope you're doing all right there. Uh, it is time to speak with the professionals of RNZ. It's the Morning Report team and it's Susie Ferguson who is here with us right now. Talo for Susie, how are you? Talo for lava, how are you? I'm well. Very good. We're just we're, Scottish families, they would feed a, a kid if they were overplaying at their house, would they? Wouldn't leave them like the Swedes? Yeah, I've seen that stuff. There's a lot of stuff online about it's that. Amazing, it's really interesting. It? Um, yes, you would get fed, absolutely. Yes, well, certainly my mother and grandmothers and aunts and... Hmm. Yeah, they would have all been piling in and force-feeding you cheese scones and the like. Yeah. <laughs> you had to leave to get away from it. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you got happening today? Well, we're going to be looking into a report uh, on the country's lead agency that supports victims of crime and trauma. It is refusing to release a report into claims of workplace bullying. Also, teachers pretty angry, uh, feeling unsafe as COVID is spreading rapidly throughout classrooms. And also... The jury in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial, we understand, has a verdict that will be coming into us over the course of the morning, and we will bring that to you on Morning Report after six. Oh, I'd love to say I don't care about that, but I do. You care. Of course you care. (laughs) Thank you very much, Susie. (laughs) Cheers. Uh, Quarter to six right now. New Zealand Rugby holds a special general meeting today to allow provincial unions to vote on uh, whether to proceed with the deal. So this is the deal. There's a US equity firm called Silver Lake. They want to take over a large chunk of its commercial operations. It's a $200 million deal and it would create a new commercial entity that will cover New Zealand rugby's commercial generating assets. Someone who's been right in this and and, um, digging through the weeds of it and having a look is Joe Porter who's with us right now. Kia ora Joe, how are you? Morena, good thank you. Uh, What does it mean for New Zealand rugby if it gets across the line? Well, it means a massive cash injection first and foremost, doesn't it? $200 million to the tune of. So um, it's sort of it's a massive boost of money to a, to an organisation who desperately needs it, who posted a profit in 2021 for the first time in five years. It was fairly marginal at $5.5 million and had was offset by money they'd been given from World Rugby. So before that, they'd, they'd lost $40 million in 2021 because of the pandemic. So that's half of their cash reserves gone. Look, participation numbers are declining across the game, both at high school, uh, primary school and club level. All Blacks are getting tempted to go overseas more and more regularly with the pay that's now being offered in Europe and Japan. New Zealand rugby are really fighting a a losing battle in many ways. So they need a cash injection. 
not only to keep the top players here and to keep the All Blacks at the top of the world, but also to keep the grassroots game healthy because at the moment it faces some real problems. Yeah, because it's not like any of the broadcasters are throwing huge amounts of broadcasting dollars like other sports that we see, right? This comes in. What, so if the deal is rejected, is there another deal like this waiting? nothing quite like it. And, mm. I, and I think New Zealand rugby have pretty much put all their eggs in one basket with this one. There has been mentions of, you know, putting the share to the to the public market on the NZX to try and get some New Zealand sort of mum and dad investors involved and a few other different options like that. But this one is the only real one that's going to bring this amount of money into New Zealand rugby and those who will sort of benefit from that. So, that, uh, yeah, it really is eggs in one basket for this. I'm pretty confident that it will get over the line today and as are New Zealand rugby and it seems the provincial unions and the players association are, are pretty um, aligned on it now and that some of the differences earlier on were perhaps a bit exaggerated so look, I, I really do think it'll get across the line if it doesn't it'll be a big shock and it means that yeah, New Zealand rugby will be I guess having to start from the get-go back to the drawing board is to figure out how to get some money. Yeah, got to get that one in. Joe, uh, thank you very much for your time. Of course, we've got our Super Rugby Pacific um, playoffs happening this weekend, so we'll tap you very soon, uh, tap into your brain there to, to get some thoughts on that. So just uh, if you're wondering, so the 26 provincial unions, they all vote, they get 90 votes. They have to get a 75% threshold for that to go through. And the Silver Lake deal was one of a number of topics that I discussed with the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Sport. Grant Robertson, I asked him how significant uh, this decision is that New Zealand rugby has to make today. Oh, look, it definitely is a major one. Um, obviously, having no private equity firm involved in New Zealand rugby is a big deal, and it's it's been a fair time in the making, and, and obviously quite controversial for for a number of people. From the perspective of being, you know, the sports minister, it's not something I I can get involved in. My focus really is making sure that our role within you know the funding that Sport New Zealand provides is really about grassroots rugby, particularly also about the development of the women's game, and obviously with the World Cup coming up shortly in New Zealand, that's a focus. So these are the the decisions that New Zealand rugby have to make and the provincial unions have to make. Um, I'm just sure they will be thinking about the grassroots of the game, how they grow the game, how they get new people involved in it. That's what's important, I think, at the end of the day. And they'll have to make their decision, but we'll we'll be continuing our work and, and making sure we do what we can to support the community level. Yeah. Now, uh, the Prime Minister, obviously, um, you know, a, a trade mission around the United States uh, culminating there in the meeting with Joe Biden. Have you heard? Like, how, how do you think it went? Did it, how it went? Did it get a meat pack? I'm not sure if that happened, but um, but it was, you know, a really successful end to what I think has been a great trip for the Prime Minister. The ability to get out there again on the world stage and promote New Zealand, had a business delegation with her, uh, representing, you know, fairly traditional kind of primary exporters, but also new tech companies and, and others wanting to break into the American market. And, and they had doors opened as a result of having the PM uh, with them. Uh, the speech at Harvard, which I, I think really was an incredible speech, um, speaking to, you know, the, the big issues of the day around democracy. And then, yeah, capping that off with with meeting President Biden. So I think PM can mark that up as a as a successful visit for New Zealand. And, you know, this now that, that we're at this stage of COVID, it's possible to travel and it's really important that she does that on all our behalves. Christopher Luxon says that the government's been off the boil on international trade and security and, and needs to hustle harder. Do you look at the Prime Minister's trip as evidence of hustling harder? Well, I think it's evidence of the Christopher Luxon being completely wrong about what he says. The Prime Minister's trip 
plus the one she recently did to Japan and Singapore are, are both examples of us getting out there in the world now that we can. But even through COVID, you know, Damien O'Connor did some tremendous work traveling up into Europe. Um, we got a UK free trade deal signed. We're making good progress on our EU deal. Uh, Minister Mahuta, Hinarei, CEO have all been up in the Pacific. We're right out there. And actually, the, the people who do the hustling are the great people from New Zealand Trade and Enterprise and MFAT who have been out there the whole time making sure that our exports have kept coming in and going into countries, making sure that connections are still there. So, you know, New Zealand relies on our relationships with the rest of the world. Um, they're in pretty good shape, and now we've got opportunities to be able to get out there. Well, we'll touch on the Pacific uh, soon. Just want to come back to the meeting with Joe Biden. So I know that the Prime Minister was scheduled for a 60-minute meeting, which turned into a 90-minute one. How does that work in that situation? Because I imagine there's prep notes and I imagine you're thinking, right, I've only got it maybe 45 minutes after all the pleasantries and cups of coffee with Joe Biden. I've got 45 minutes to sell this. Did she have 90 minutes worth of, uh, worth of material ready? Oh, look, you know, I think the Prime Minister is the kind of person who's really across the agenda and, and would have easily filled that. And as I'm a former diplomat, I think, as you know, Nathan, and I can tell you with a diary like the President of the United States diary, it is highly unusual for a 60-minute meeting to turn into a 90-minute meeting. Yeah. And I can imagine his staff would have just been going mad <laughs> trying to get him into the next thing that he had to do. But that's a tribute to both the relationship between the United States and New Zealand, and I think also to the Prime Minister and the President having a, a good rapport. You know, And we know that the issues that they covered around things like climate change, the Pacific, um, issues around gun control, no doubt, because the President did say he wanted to talk about that. So a really good sign, I think, for their relationship and for New Zealand's relationship that had happened, but there will have been a, an official like I used to be sitting there desperately trying to work out what was going to happen with the rest of the diary. And I think he was meeting a K-pop band yeah, later on BTS. too. So that in, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're going, sir, there's the pop band. Sir, you have to meet them. They're great. <laughs> hey, also too, what's the significance of Kamala Harris also uh, attending that meeting as well? Because I hadn't heard that she would be there as well. Was Was that a surprise? No, no, that was scheduled. In fact, okay. they had a they had a separate one on one, and then she was also there for that meeting. Oh, okay. You know, the vice president's role is an important one, and one that where when you can get that amount of face time with with the vice president is, is as valuable as anything. So, no, no, that was definitely on the schedule, and it came on top of a string of meetings the PM had on Capitol Hill with senators and so on. New Zealanders will have seen it was a breakneck schedule, and they really did manage to cram some great meetings into it. Mm. Let's come back to the Pacific now. Obviously, China raised a few few feathers there. I know that uh, Penny Wong from Australia went over and, and you know was in the Pacific as well. Our, our presence in the Pacific, you know, with China making inroads into the region, is it under threat? Is it something that you think we need to pick up? Like, how do you how do we move forward here? Because I see that it's not like the Pacific nations went, okay, China, we're going to agree to everything you've come to us with. Like, how do what what is New Zealand's responsibility? moving forward here with the Pacific nations? Yeah, I think it's got to be built off the long-standing relationships that we do have in the Pacific. Um, New Zealand is is a partner and a, a friend and a member of the Pacific community. And so our relationships are long-standing. Uh, they're not only about the support we might provide through overseas aid, they're, they're about people-to-people -people links. You know, there are people who who have very close links with the Pacific and communities here. Um, they're also about issues like climate change, where New Zealand has been a strong advocate for the Pacific nations. And so 
this is really a time in our history where it's vitally important that we make sure that what happens in this region is in the best interests of our Pacific neighbours. And it is definitely a contested space when it comes to the bigger global powers. You know, both the United States and China have been very you know, visible in the Pacific recently. Mm. Obviously, we've expressed our significant concern about the agreement that China and the Solomon Islands signed because that was a military security style agreement. The China's always had a presence in the Pacific for other reasons. And so, yep, there's definitely a lot of interest there now. But New Zealand's the consistent partner here. And I think that's appreciated by by those partner countries. Yeah, let's move here to farming. So, a, a panel of independent experts have they've made a raft of recommendations about reforming the the drug buying agency Farmac. Can those changes that are needed be implemented with the same people running Farmac, or should there be changes at the top? Normally, it's running that way because the people that are in charge like how it works. Yeah, look, I, I would certainly like to think that the people who work there will be able to adjust to what's been recommended in the review. We do have to acknowledge that Pharmac has done a lot of good for New Zealand over the years. It's allowed us to use, you know, a bulk purchasing model to be able to to purchase more medicines than we would otherwise be able to as as a small country with like New Zealand. However, it has had some weaknesses and and those are picked up in the review. It will obviously align itself now with the new health system, which is a nationwide health service, and that will take a bit of change, but I'm confident people will will be able to understand that. The feedback I get around FAMIC, often the, the, the concern here is around what we call rare conditions and diseases where Pharmax bulk purchasing model doesn't quite work. And I think that's one of the really important recommendations out of the review is that we will look for a strategy that enables us to better deal with those rare conditions when the cost-benefit analysis doesn't quite add up. So there are some significant tweaks and changes that are coming there, but it is also an organisation that has delivered value for money over the years. And, you know, I recall when we were negotiating the, the CPTPP, there were, you know, the medicines industry wasn't all that keen on it. Well, that's because actually it's been really good for New Zealanders in terms of getting access to those medicines at a cheaper price. So we won't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We want to make sure we get the best of this, but make the changes that that allow it to, to do, you know, even more for New Zealanders. Finally, in Australia, they're going to make the flu vaccine free because soaring cases going on. Are we in a position to do the same? Should we do the same? Well, Obviously, we've funded um, around 2 million um, vaccines through the program that we've got. That's been an extension on what we've previously done, and our focus has been around older New Zealanders and and those who are vulnerable to respiratory-style illnesses. There is plenty of flu vaccine available. A lot of workplaces provide it for their staff. And we'll obviously always continue to look at how we can you know, increase the numbers. And I really do encourage people to get their flu shot. And for many people, they will have the access to free shots. And it, we haven't had the flu for a, a, at a grand scale for a couple of years. And so it is important, it is important that people get along and, and get that vaccine. Deputy Prime Minister uh, Grant Robertson. Finally this morning, some of your feedback. Jane says, hi Nathan, I think passports should be extended by two years as most of us have been unable to use them and they're expensive. Now there is a backlog to get them. That's a good idea, like that one, Jane. Uh, Han says this, are there any Swedish restaurants that do they charge you for being there and then you just have to sit there and watch them eat? Um, thank you very much, Han. Uh, also, we were talking about Johnny Weissmuller before, who was the original Tarzan in his yodel. Here's one. If you didn't do the Tarzan noise before jumping into a pool or a river, were you even a kid in the 70s or 80s? <laughs> 
splash. Uh, uh, Nolene says, uh, Morning, Nathan. Thanks so much for Johnny's yodelling. My hero is a kid. Many years later, we found an old tape, sat in expectation as we, my kids, hubby, and I watched. Tarzan, Jane, and boy dive into the river, synchronise swimming, and then they jump out with their hair bone dry. We rolled around laughing. Great memories. And uh, Jay Carr from Palmerston North, I believe, is celebrating seven decades on this precious earth this weekend. I think it's what's going on there. So congratulations to you. Should we go out with some yodelling? She took me to yodel, yodel. You can get in touch with us by going to a high mountain and yodelling and we could hear it, or you can just email us any day. First up at rnz.co.nz. We're now available on podcast whenever you like, or we're back in your ears. Apopo.